again, if you're not keeping human in the loop, God knows what can happen with your algorithm. Human antelope? Human in the loop. Human in the loop. In the loop. Oh, I thought you were saying antelope. <laughs> in the loop. <laughs> I was like, okay, I don't understand that part. Okay, humans in the loop. Gotcha. It's actually really hard to say because artificial intelligence and neural networks are quite often considered black boxes. You can't really explain what's happening, why they made this decision. Because it's really good just to meet motivational people. Sometimes you get such a great energy boost just talking with someone who's passionate about something. It doesn't even have to be your field. My name is Anastasia Georgievska. I'm the CEO and co-founder of my startup, which is called Haut AI. Haut is skin in German and hence the name. My company is uh, developing software as a service for skincare field. It's image-based system. We think of it as a beauty intelligence system that ultimately helps consumers all around the world shop better and eliminate unnecessary guesswork and anxiety when it comes to picking up the right skincare and beauty products. A little bit about myself. I'm based in Tallinn in Estonia. I'm now 29 years old. I founded this startup when I was 24 as a fresh graduate. And yeah, I'm super excited about artificial intelligence, about the beauty field. I think there's a lot to enhance and a lot to change in this field. And we are working every day to make it better and more consumer friendly. And so I guess the website is haut.ai if anyone wanted to check it out. Yes, that's correct. Okay. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about this? How you're using AI for your company and the skincare? Sure. I would say that my company is not only using artificial intelligence as the only tool in our toolbox. Generally, the main capability of our software is computer vision algorithms. And computer vision doesn't necessarily mean that algorithm has to be artificial intelligence which usually entails using of some of the algorithms like neural networks. We also use a lot of classical computer vision models to identify skin features. So right now we can track around 150 facial biomarkers to help personalize purchase offerings. So the software by itself can help a consumer capture a picture using just a simple smartphone camera. You don't need any advanced high-end medical devices to do that. After the picture is captured, we're sending it to our secure cloud where we run our computer vision models in parallel and can deliver results pretty quick in about two, three seconds. And after the results are complete, which means that we have built your unique skin profile based on your facial features, we will be matching skincare products with your skin profile. And how many people work in your company? And can you give us a little bit of idea as far as revenue or amount of customers that you have? So our company is a startup stage at the moment. We have 29 persons in our team. We work with the multiple companies everywhere around the world. We have around 90 clients, which includes skincare manufacturers, retailers like Alta Beauty, and also a number of smaller companies like longevity clinics or skin clinics. Pretty much businesses that produce services or goods that have effect on skin are among our clients. And I guess you gave us the number of clients, but as far as where they're located, I know you said kind of all around the world and you said you're in Estonia. So I'm curious where most of those clients are. Are they like US-based or can you give us a better idea of how you even pitch these clients, what you're saying to them? 
US market is one of the, it's not one of the biggest, it's actually the biggest market for skincare products. So of course, we're targeting US clients and US is a big geography for us. Also Europe and Asia Pacific regions, not only limited to this three locations, we have clients in Australia, in Colombia, in South Africa. So that's why I'm saying everywhere around the world. When we're pitching to them, I would say that pitch is universal. Of course, there are different alteration depending there is a big difference on how you pitch in Asian region and in the US. Use cases sometimes are also different. But generally, I think what makes our software easy to understand is that people can have very different opinions about beauty, beauty, beauty standards. But what is universal is, and when I'm saying universal, most population will agree that having healthy skin, free of imperfections, free of diseases, is considered beautiful or at least attractive, appealing. And the fact that our software helps accurately identify what are the skin concerns and how to address them makes our pitch easier because, again, it's something universal. It's something that every one of us would like to have. And we are pitching to our clients that if they start working with us, they can personalize offering to their clients much better, which obviously increases the satisfaction of your purchases. It helps you improve some short-term metrics, like I want to sell more, right? But more and more players in the beauty field are saying that there is a better alternative to just transactional relationships when, you know, a customer comes to your platform and you would never see them again, right? It's kind of one-time purchase. Brands, especially direct-to-consumer brands, whose main touch point is online, want to build relationships with clients. We want to build this trust. We want to offer education. and this is exactly what our software is doing. So it helps explain what's wrong with your skin. And it also explains what products you should be using and why. And so are you more of like a B2B play where you're helping, I don't know if you can even release some of the clients' names that you kind of give them this AI, they can put it on their app or whatever. And then if it's a certain brand, then these people are like, hey, you should use this brand to clear your acne or something like that. Exactly. So our software is primarily B2B. We do, however, have plans about launching our own B2C app at some time point. I'm not sure this is confirmed at the moment. To name you some clients, our clients are Alta Beauty. I think if you are listening to this podcast from US, you are pretty familiar with this beauty retailer. Among manufacturers, one of our clients is Beiersdorf, which is the owner of Nivea. Yeah, so we help companies target the right products to their customers. If we're talking about retailer and manufacturers, use cases will be slightly different because manufacturer has usually a particular brand. So they would be matching products from this brand's assortment to the skin concerns. With a retailer, it can be more sophisticated because retailers obviously have bigger number of brands. Alta has, I think, thousands of brands that they are offering. But then the idea is that how you can offer the right brand and the right products at the same time, but also matches the budget but also matches the values of the consumer. So do I want to show from the local producers? Or maybe I want to shop for K-pop skincare, or maybe I want to, I don't know, only purchase cruelty-free products. So that adds additional layers of complexity, and at the same time, it offers additional, more deep personalization of your purchases. That makes sense, but how do you, they decide it or you decide it? I guess that's what I'm trying to figure out as well as we kind of dive more deep into this AI that you have. So we let algorithms decide. We use not only computer vision models to recognize face features, 
but we also use recommendation engines, which utilize both decision trees and some of the recurrent neural networks. I will explain what it basically means. So usually neural network is trained once, like once per iteration. So you have your training data set, then you have a set of answers that you want the system to learn how to reproduce. Like, let's say you have a picture and you have an expert grading, maybe a dermatologist, who would classify what type of acne is this or what type of wrinkles these are. So your idea is to build a network that will reproduce answers as if it was a dermatologist. So you kind of want to mimic a professional grading. But this is not the only type of artificial intelligence algorithms. So the example I just explained is called supervised learning. Because obviously there's a supervisor, in this case it's dermatologist. Some networks are trained and they function differently. So the goal of these networks is not to only learn from an expert, but also learn from the consequences. So these networks are called recurrent. So their idea is that you will utilize outcomes as input data for improvement of their accuracy of this algorithm. And we're using these networks also to see what products were performing better. So whenever clients are using our system, they can upload their inventory. We will be looking at the ingredients. We will be looking at our knowledge of how different ingredients and combinations perform on different persons to then match with products. So decisions are carried out by the algorithm, but we also understand that brands might want to shape the recommendations as well. So this is where we're also offering additional AI-based tools to make recommendations personalized and aligned with uh, what brands is trying to achieve. Hope I didn't confuse you too much. No, that, that makes sense. I'm just trying to take it in and trying to make sure everyone else does too. When you're talking about the recurrent network versus something learning network, what was the first one that you stated? Yeah, so it's just different approaches. So it's supervised learning. Supervised learning, okay. Yes. Gotcha. That makes sense. I mean, anyone who's context clues, you're like, okay, they're learning from someone who's supervising them, right? In this case, a dermatologist versus their recurrent network. Is that what you said? Yes. So if we would compare, you know, let's come up with an example, let's say treatment of acne. So if we were to only use a, a, like a supervised learning, we would want it to detect different skin eruptions and maybe classify them. So is it like blackhead or is it papule or maybe it's post-acne inflammation? So the network can detect these regions and classify them. Then what if I want to solve a different task? So I want to, I know what acne a person has based on their skin profile. Then I want to see how different treatments would improve the condition of skin, or maybe they will not improve. Maybe even skin will get worse, right? But I want to extract this learning. So what product helped to this consumer or like didn't help, as I mentioned. So If I'm also able to fit their outcome to the neural network, maybe I can remeasure skin in two weeks after I started using the product. So then the neural network can also learn what is the probability that this product is suitable for other consumers similar to consumer in my trading set. So in that sense, you not only just say what's the skin condition, you also try to build correlations, or if you are very lucky, causality, because correlations don't always mean that, that some products will be helpful for a particular group of users or like consumers with a higher probability than other products. 
So you're saying, based on your acting discussion and kind of having those different things, you're saying the AI, if you're doing the recurrent network, is it automatically going to take into someone's age? They're like, okay, this person's 80 versus person 16. I'm going to recommend this because I know they're 16 versus the 80-year-old might be dealing with wrinkles instead. And so it's automatically taking that into account as well and, and learning from that. It's actually really hard to say because you maybe have heard that artificial intelligence and neural networks are quite often considered black boxes. You can't really explain in most times what's happening, why they made this decision. It's one of the problems of general AI and special AI. So general AI, it's kind of a field overall, right? And then special AI is application of AI in the particular field. But again, you can't always understand why it's making the decisions. There are different ways how you can interpret using heat maps, for example, in computer vision, you can try to build attention maps. Attention map stand for kind of heat maps that try to describe what pixels in the picture the algorithm considered to be most predictive. Again, that's quite often speculative. So you can then try to kind of run additional tests and understand what features made an impact. Making algorithms more interpretable, you actually always need to have a person in the loop to understand if results make sense, depending on their field. And like subject matter experts can tell if results make sense, if they're aligned with the general knowledge. It's actually one of the reasons why here in Europe we have AI Act that will be adapted, I think, in two years from now, that describes the procedures of building non-harmful AI, safe AI. And one of the requirements is at every stage of development or using of artificial intelligence algorithms, you will always have a person in the loop, the one who is supervising what's happening and also checks that this algorithm does make sense. For most of us, learning a second language in high school or college wasn't exactly a high point in our academic careers. Like back when I had to take Spanish in high school and only remember hola. But now, thanks to Babbel, the language learning app that's sold more than 10 million subscriptions, there's an addictively fun and easy way to learn a new language. Whether you'll be traveling abroad, connecting in a deeper way with your family, or you just have some free time, Babbel teaches bite-sized language lessons that you'll actually use in the real world. And guess what? I chose to brush up on my Spanish, so not only could I learn hello, but I could also learn adios. See, with Babbel's 15-minute lessons, they make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. Babbel's expertly crafted lessons are built around real life. You learn how to have practical conversations about travel, relationships, business, and more. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts. Their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accents. There are so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash millionaire. That's babbel.com slash millionaire for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. 
I'm here with John Austinson. How are you doing today, John? Hey, Austin. Doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, thank you for supporting the podcast. And I interviewed John on episode 250 of this very podcast. So you can hear more about John's story and how he grew Franbridge Consulting right here. But in the meantime, would you mind reminding our listeners what you do and what you could potentially help them with? Yeah. You know, we work with entrepreneurs and investors across the country, helping them get into business ownership through franchising. And when I say franchising, you likely think fast food. And yet there's so many other industries out there from home and property services to health and wellness from kids, pets, the aging population, oil changes, all of these understandable cash flowing businesses that oftentimes are recession resistant. And 90% of our clients end up purchasing an opportunity they never thought about. We work with the largest brokerage in the country, over 600 different franchise companies. Having been a franchise or a franchisee myself, I'm very picky about which ones that we show to our clients, only the best of the best. The great thing, Austin, is it's entirely free to work with us. We're funded by the companies, very much like an executive search type model, so our clients never pay us a nickel. And we do more deals for our clients than anybody else in the country. And what does a typical client look like for you? Two thirds of our clients would be looking to keep their day job. They're looking to get into business ownership, maybe as a side hustle, or maybe they're already a business owner and they can't get their full attention. We work with doctors, lawyers, existing business owners, corporate executives, really a wide array of backgrounds all around the country. As far as anyone who might be interested in your service, is there a best way for them to reach you? Yeah, come out to our website, franbridgeconsulting.com. That's F-R-A-N, bridgeconsulting.com. For all of your listeners, Austin, we'll also send them a copy of our new book, either audio or PDF version, or they can purchase it on Amazon. But I would love to share that. Our book is called Non-Food Franchise, and we've gotten great feedback since its release. If you're interested in taking a next step, you know, let my assistant Ashley know, and uh, she'll schedule a call, and we'll discuss your situation and what could be a good fit. Yeah. And I know you've already scheduled a few calls with our listeners. Could you just tell them what that typically is like, like how long and if it's free for them to do? Yeah, we've had a great response from your listeners. Entirely free. Because of the caliber of folks that we work with, we cut to the chase. We usually spend 20 to 30 minutes on that first call. And then as the next step, that following week, we'll come to them with opportunities, usually around 10 or so in their market. They're available to check all the boxes and we talk them through those and then uh, make introductions to the ones that seem most intriguing to them. Well, that sounds awesome. And again, if someone was interested in scheduling a call, where's the best place for them to go ahead and sign up? Yeah, come out to our website, franbridgeconsulting.com, F-R-A-N, bridgeconsulting.com. And uh, we would love to engage. I mean, that makes perfect sense, it seems like to me, especially mathematical people. You're like, I need to know why it chose whatever it chose. But you're saying that's not possible. I mean, it's not always possible. Or sometimes you can only understand half of facts. Primarily why you cannot always understand how AI is making its decisions is because usually, like, let's compare some previous methods that existed before artificial intelligence. And let's talk about image recognition. So before artificial intelligence, you usually would be crafting features yourself, features that you want to identify from the picture. And you say, I introduced this feature, this is how I describe it. And this is how I want to measure that. And in that sense, you kind of give instructions to algorithms which you like implement in a code. And it works, hopefully, according to your protocol, right? If you didn't make any mistakes or it's just possible to launch this algorithm. Then if I think about artificial intelligence, quite often they say, okay, we should admit the fact that as humans, our perception is also limited, right? So what if we tell a smart system that is designed in a similar way as our brains. And we tell the system that the system is not limited to choosing the features. 
to choosing how it will be solving the task. Let's kind of give it full freedom. So if you do that, the algorithm starts to learn dependencies in the data to run its predictions. And the fact why it's sometimes so hard to discover what features were used or like how AI made this decision is because we don't always understand the complex dependencies in the data. And this is why we use these algorithms, because we want to consolidate knowledge from the data, because we cannot do it ourselves, because you need a lot more computational resources. And, you know, humans are very smart, and this is why we have this gut feeling, but just, you know, machines can do it in a more structured way. So because these dependencies are complex, again, quite often it's hard to understand why algorithm made one decision over another. But maybe I'd like to talk more about how we ensure that our AI makes sense. We're using the principles of human in the loop. So whenever we're training algorithms, it's supervised by dermatologists or skin experts. And then we're releasing our models, we're testing them on retrospective data, we're testing them on the real data coming from consumers, and then we're ensuring that it works correctly. Again, if you're not keeping human in the loop, God knows what can happen with your algorithm. Human antelope? Human in the loop. Human in the loop. In the loop. Oh, I thought you were saying antelope. <laughs> in the loop. <laughs> I was like, okay, I don't understand that part. Okay, humans in the loop. Gotcha. Human in the loop, yes. Okay, so all your AI has that right now, you're saying, right? Yes. Like you're not doing yes. the recurrent network. We're doing recurrent networks as well. Don't get me wrong. We're using different techniques, and I would say there are much more... Existing and constantly developing, there's a new field of transformers, there are generative adversarial networks. I would say that one needs to understand, and again, I'm not a super technical person, right? My background's in biophysics, not in software engineering. It's very important to understand maths behind AI, how it works, so that you know what are limitations, so you know what are the traps and where you have to be extra conscious. And then you just have a very rich toolbox and you can choose the sharpest tool depending on uh, what task do you need to solve. But even if we went back to, remember the two things that you talked about, the supervised learning network versus the recurrent network, you could run AI on both of those and then kind of decide, right? Someone can, I mean, I guess it is supervised at the end. If you just look what the recurrent network would have picked versus the supervised learning network would have picked as far as like skin condition and everything. So technically, recurrent network also supervised because you have kind of a target. It's just different approaches, but recurrent networks can also learn from experience. And then, for example, a neural network, which is trained for segmentation task to segment objects in the picture, wouldn't have kind of learning because just, you know, as a fact, there is a hyperfragmentation spot and the network detected that. But if you, for example, applied some cream and then you want to say, look, this is what happened after a month of using this cream. This is how my skin metrics looked before a month ago. This is how they look right now. So if you use recurrent networks, you can utilize this experience as a learning to then be able to predict better recommendations in the future using that learning from experience. But what would you classify that as? Do you still classify that as a recurrent network? So recurrent network, it's kind of the network architecture. It's an approach that you can use. You use primarily these networks for learning from experience. Yeah, I guess we can dive more into this AI if that's okay. So far, just understanding the basics, because that was my thing when you said you didn't know why the AI kind of chose it. That kind of boggled my mind because the whole idea with even blockchain, right? Like I'm not into crypto or blockchain or anything like that, but 
the whole idea with the blockchain is that you can see every transaction that was made and is tied to this basically for life, right? So we know why this happened or whatever occurred with this transaction, from my understanding. Again, I don't mess around with blockchain or anything like that. But then with this recurrent network, you didn't necessarily know, which is disturbing, it seems like. Yes, that's correct. You don't necessarily know how it's making decisions. And it's, again, one of the big, I would say, community concerns when it comes to artificial intelligence, but it's not always interpretable. And I would say, as far as I know, it's never 100% interpretable. So this, of course, raises concerns, right? It offers lots of benefits, but we always need to make a step back, maybe turn down our excitement and think, you know, what's really happening. So what are the benefits and what are the negatives? So the benefits are the fact that you can learn from massive amounts of data. So you can, again, uncover some dependencies that you wouldn't do if you were not using this big data approach. Then a lot of tasks can be automated. For some specific fields, you can achieve quite high accuracy very fast. For example, in computer vision, in natural language processing, you can take some of the models open source available on GitHub, you know, with a free license, and you can train it on your data and you can get more than 80% accuracy in a matter of like week, just playing around. So if you maybe spend additional month, you can achieve accuracy for specific tasks in a month. Then what happens after that is achieving 96% takes more time, but then going from 96% to 99% will be super, super hard, right? So I would say that automation of some stereo tasks can be done easily. Then if you have been watching what's happening in generative AI, now DALI, a project by OpenAI, can generate images just from the textual input, which is considered to be a big breakthrough in the creativity because we can generate some concepts or some ideas because it's considered to be very helpful for art people, designers or artists or even social media managers, right? So you can go to DALI and generate a picture which will be unique and you can use it with a copyright on your social platforms, right? So then it opens up a lot of time for being creative. And then, you know, there's a tool that can carry out the boring work, if you will, or like the hard work of actually producing an art object. Then OpenAI, ChatGDP also like generate a lot of interest around that with being able to reproduce the human conversation. So that's even save up time, you know, you can use it for maybe write some email, but you didn't find enough time to write in the whole week. And then in five minutes, you can get your email follow-up, right? So that frees time for being creative, for carrying out the tasks that artificial intelligence cannot do, but requires human involvement. And a lot of just daily things. We don't think about that, but a lot of things are AI-based, like our internet searches, selection of the music, maybe things we don't interact daily, but... In some warehouses, you're using AI for logistics, for supply chain, for managing the warehouses. It's becoming more and more part of our daily life. So these are obviously the benefits. Some tasks which took more time before, you can now do faster. The disadvantages, I would say, but the only concern is for me as a person who's working in the AI field is the fact that you don't always understand 100% why it made its decisions. So this is why you need to ensure you have the right system to monitor biases, to detect any anomalies. So you kind of have to be conscious about how you're using that. 
Another disadvantage is that AI still requires a lot of computational resources, a lot of electricity, a lot of power, a lot of GPUs to be trained, which I would say people can argue, but that's not necessarily really environmentally friendly because, you know, electricity also means CO2 emission, right? You know, that's just uh, what comes from the top of my head. No, you're doing a good job. I mean, one thing I was writing down, I was trying to figure out, do you consider Google Maps AI? What do you mean Google Maps AI? Yeah, yeah. Well, say if I want to drive somewhere eight hours away and I put it into my phone and I put the address, is that considered artificial intelligence or no? So if it's not necessarily what I was talking is like Google Maps AI, but rather when you're browsing the net, you have a very specific query, you want to find the hits. And then what AI does, it filters out the hits that you unlikely need to make sure that your search results are relevant to what you were trying to achieve. So a lot of these algorithms are also artificial intelligence based. Well, then I think Google Maps would have to be too, just thinking that way. Or you know, I'm sure you've used Apple Maps or whatever you use to get anywhere because it's just taking how many people are put in that address, right? Maybe at first when I don't even know how long has AI been around? So I would say that if we look back into the history, AI as a concept and neural networks has been around since around 1980s. It was already there. So there's a very good book by ex-CEO of Google China, which is called AI Superpowers. And this book, the author talks about how AI emerged and what enabled it big breakthroughs. When you said that Google search, all that, that, so we're actually all using AI, it's just the different versions of it kind of is what you were saying, like the supervised learning versus recurrent. Yeah, I would say there is AI, but everyone thinks of AI when we're talking right now, right? So some modern techniques. And as I, like, as I mentioned this book, it's actually wrote by Kai Fu Lee. He's a very famous think tank in AI space. And what is it called again? Just so everyone can get that. So the book is called AI Superpowers and the author is Kai Fu Lee. So there, let's say modern AI, you know, it's rebranding happened in around 2015 or 2016 because GPUs became more available. Also a lot of developments from NVIDIA came around and it became accessible not only by super big corporations, but for example, back in 2016, we as a startup could use artificial intelligence and GPUs to train our first models. So I would say that around 2016 was a time then high-scale adoption of AI began. And that's when I started hearing, and again, just so everyone knows that the author's name is K-A-I-F-U. That's the first name and last name's L-E-E. And we'll have it in the show notes if anyone's interested in this book. But I think that's when I started hearing about Well, I know it's funny that they're talking about AI superpowers in China with this book, but that's really when they started doing facial recognition, I feel like. I started hearing about it a few years ago, so obviously they started doing it years before that. So it's funny that you're saying AI 2015, 2016, when it really kind of started taking off, if you will. Yeah, they obviously started perhaps doing that earlier, maybe like as R&D, a proof of concept. From my experience, it really takes time between R&D and Leveraging something to a real system, there's a very big difference between just lab prototype versus that joke around developers, which is like works on my machine, right? So how to make sure that something you have developed for R&D works in real life. You're sometimes surprised. You think something will work perfectly and then it fails. And this is same as with AI, right? It's not super resilient when it comes to change in the input data. So sometimes real life welcomes you as kind of, you understand it's a failure, right? You have to start from scratch. It's not working. Thank you for giving me the history on it, at least as simply as possibly as you could. But I was curious, going back to your company, do you mind if we jump back to that? 
Absolutely. I like talking about AI and I really like my startup. So I like talking about that as well. So how do you actually make money with these searches that you're doing? Or if you're making this app for these brands or whatever, I don't know if there's different types of revenue or can you tell us like how you figure out how to charge people for that and actually make money doing this? Of course, it's not something that we have developed from the very beginning. It was a journey as all the startups. Right now, we're using subscription model. So it's SaaS software. You can subscribe to the software. We're charging you for usage, depending on how many pictures you're processing. At the beginning, I would say we started as two scientists. So myself and my co-founder, we have scientific background, myself in biophysics and bioinformatics, and my co-founder's background is in theoretical physics. Before we even started to sell something, we wanted to build something that people want. So that was the first thing. We launched two beauty apps back in 2016 when we just wanted to understand if someone will be interested in analyzing their skin. We launched these apps. We got first users. They were really excited. They were waiting for the results. And we saw, yes, there is something in that. It looks like consumers want to understand what's happening with their skin. And they want to also find a secret sauce how to make their skin better. This also was a time when we were approached by our first partners in their beauty field, skincare companies, who wanted to bridge the gap between marketing and R&D. Because quite often marketing builds up its messages based on what R&D is able to achieve. So whether these are better formulation or maybe better packaging or recorded results for a particular demographics. So all of that is used by marketing to kind of address right consumers and uh, market the products to the right groups. We realized that there is scarcity of selfie-based, like something simple, because skin is analyzed in very different ways. Quite often it requires a lot of expensive equipment, different type of spectroscopy methods that they can cost up to a million. You can't put it into every point of sales. You can't leverage to every consumer. So you need something which is, you know, more affordable. And this is a mobile phone. So I would say it was quite right time for us in 2016 because AI started to become more and more popular, but also consumer devices as smart homes became more affordable. So I like to think about that right now when our brands or like our clients want to start using our system, they sometimes don't understand that the most important hardware investment has already been made by their clients and it's in their pocket. And this is their smartphone. So we thought, yes, we need to go into smartphone software. We, of course, like developed multiple methods for these different derma scans, and we still wanted to utilize our previous R&D. And one of our biggest breakthroughs technically was, again, to translate clinical methods into the phone. It took us a long time, around two and a half years, but we finally got there. So we developed software for selfie. We thought, okay, you can buy that now. Let's go to the market and let's offer it to the brands. Let's offer it to potential customers. So it turned out that it's quite hard to sell something that you cannot test easily, but you cannot start using easily because it takes, like especially bigger companies, more time just to get on track. For them to experiment, it requires, I don't know, six people at least to coordinate, especially if it's a big company. So you really need to have a solution which is easy to use, fast to use, and you know something that they can play around. So this is when we started to go into API business, right? So it's SaaS business. We put our algorithms into the cloud and every client could send requests to our cloud, send their data and get it back annotated with a skin profile or maybe uh, user clustering. So something that's accessible everywhere around the world. So we started to sell the software to bigger corporations, 
war and kind of enterprise type of deals. But then we saw that, you know, there is a big opportunity on the market because beauty market is huge. Beauty personal care, I think, is now estimated around 580 billion US dollars. It's growing quite fast. There is like additional market for AI and beauty, which is valued around 4 billion US dollars. So the market is huge and there's a lot of players there. But you can't sell to enterprise in the same way as you would be selling to SMEs. So we tried selling solution as API to SMEs. It turned out they can't use API. Very few SMEs have technical resources to take your API, which still requires coding converse site, developing backend, developing frontend, connecting it with your cloud, right? For most SMEs, this is not achievable. So then we thought, okay, it looks like there is an opportunity, but our product is not a fit for this big opportunity of clients. And we started to think how we can do it better. And this is when we came up an idea of WordPress for skincare. So it's a widget that you can put on your website, whether it is Shopify or WooCommerce or BigCommerce, and start recommending products from this widget, which you can customize using online portal. You don't need to make any developments. It's kind of zero code, zero development product, but you can get all of the benefits of our artificial intelligence system. So this is when we came to the idea that Technology is very important, right? If you have bad technology, no one will buy your solution. But it's not the only thing which your clients will base their decision on, right? You need to have a technology that you can sell, and you also need to have a technology that someone can buy. It means that they actually can use it. And you doing the ease of use thing where you're saying you made a WordPress widget or whatever, yeah, versus the AI. And when you're saying SME, you're just talking about small, medium enterprise in case anyone didn't know. So that's most small businesses, right? It makes sense. They don't have the people in the background to connect to your AI, but by you making a widget or something simpler for them that they can just put on their WordPress site, which I feel like most small businesses use now, that made it much more open, I guess, to you getting more clients, huh? Yes, it's actually enabled us quite good growth last year. So we tripled our number of clients during 2022. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. Because like beforehand, when you're talking about, even I understand being able to hook up to an API, but it's not easy. Like if you use, for instance, I use Cloudflare on my website, or if you use Zapier or something, it's like if they're connecting it, it's because usually it has an open API and then you have to get a code from there, put it in there, make sure they connect, and then things can change on those platforms. So I definitely see how that made it much easier for people like me to be like, okay, I can use this if it's an app versus me trying to get someone to code it up through Upwork and connect with your features and see what I can do just to make it as basic as we could. It seems like that was the big play that helped you out a lot. Precisely. And also we need to think of support, right? As you mentioned, APIs tend to change from time to time because, you know, some libraries of, for example, Python or like Java languages quite often used for backend development or like for frontend development, different languages, the code evolves, it's getting updated. So if you didn't update your code, it's likely that your API can also break. And small companies don't have those resources that maybe can pay someone for one-time setup integration fee. But it's quite hard for them to invest in the support as well. So this is where I say, we suggest to use our widget for e-commerce. And we make sure that we are responsible for supporting that for you. And you just continue using that and building better relationships with your clients. Yeah, I do want to come back to that. Let's come back to how you decided to do that and came up with that e idea. But you kind of briefly talked about it. As far as your age today, you're 30, correct? 
or 29? Yes, almost 30, 29. Yeah. So when you came out of college, you were 23 when you were thinking about this, right? This was your first thing that you started doing right out of college. You didn't have another job or anything like that. You just started working with AI right away. I actually did have a job as bioinformatician. I was working as research associate in a company that was performing drug discovery using also artificial intelligence, but my work was primarily focused on analysis of different biological samples data. So not exactly what I'm doing right now. I got this job as a part of, I think, some internship from university, and I didn't have any savings. I didn't have, honestly, any kind of plan for my life. I was scientist by training, so I was thinking maybe I should be pursuing an academic career as most of my friends at university did get a PhD and then after a postdoc position and continue being a scientist. The problem that I had in my university years is I honestly didn't understand, you know, what opportunities existed, except for scientific career. The education I had was great, it was fundamental, but we knew nothing about entrepreneurship, right? We knew nothing about how you can utilize your skills. The best opportunity that you could think outside of academic career would be working for pharma, big pharma, because, you know, skills in bioinformatics are kind of a good match for them. But that's it. But at one of the competitions for bioinformatics, where I also met my co-founder, Konstantin, I also met Alex Javrinkov, who is the CEO of Ancilica Medicine, which is a unicorn drug discovery company, who became my mentor. So he did a lot for me. I think he taught me everything about business. He always believed in myself. He was kind of promoting me as a female founder and just telling me, you know, what have what it takes to kind of run a business and I should explore the idea of building this skincare startup, right? Then after I met Alex, I also started to get into that startup life, right? You start to meet founders, you discuss peer-to-peer what's happening, how you are trying to troubleshoot, and make sure, you know, your startup can continue existing, right? Because you don't have any money. At the beginning, you don't have any investment. You don't know if your idea will work or not, if someone will buy that, how your life will go, or maybe you should stop doing that and get back to this big pharma. So I would say what was quite messy, but life, especially of a startup life, it's kind of a marathon. It's not a sprint. So you kind of just continue doing every day, evolving your product, evolving your technology. And eventually, your technology is good. You start to understand how it can be applied, what could be the use cases, you expand your network, you know, start to meet not only kind of R&D people, but you start to build business people, right? And if you happen to find good ones, right, they will help you find this direction. So that's why I think it's so important if you are coming from scientific background, right, and don't necessarily have training in business. It's very important to find your team. It's important to build a network, just finding people with different opinions, with different skill sets discussing your ideas, getting feedback, ideally finding a mentor. If you can find a mentor who is a superstar in your field, that's amazing. That's not always happening, right? Start finding experts, start finding people who have good reputation, and you can figure out different ways how to partner with them. But it's very important for scientists not to be inside of their bubble, right? It's very important to understand that technology is great, but it's not the only component of a startup right? There should be more to that, like product strategy. And if you don't feel like you can do it by yourself, you should be looking for people who can join your team and help you bring your startup to where you see the right fit for that and and what's your vision. 
But how about for your particular startup? I mean, did you stop doing your job that you said you had right out of college and then go all in on this? Or was it kind of part-time as far as trying to figure out your timeline of how you grow, grew your company to where it is today? So at the beginning, I had like my day job, which was an office job. And then at night, I would be running my startup or on the weekends. So I kind of first years, I think I had two jobs because already graduated. So I had to earn some money as well. The startup didn't earn any money the first years. So then we started to get first clients. It became obvious, you know, but you have to choose. And the choice was obvious for me, right? I was super excited about what I'm doing. I couldn't imagine my life in a different way. And this is why I didn't hesitate to just dedicate 100% of my time to my startup. But when you decided to go 100% in, were you making money yet on it? Yes, I was making money, not a lot, but you know, it was enough to cover my base cost of living, which again was not very high because I was just a student. So I was making money, not a lot, but it was good enough for me to continue working on building the company. Well, yeah, can you take us over that journey of the first couple of years? I mean, because I know you said today you have 28 employees, but I'm just curious of the growth of your company, what other highlights you've had over the last six or seven years as far as building this thing? Sure. So at first, was myself and my co-founder working on the startup. We started to get some contracts from clients and uh, the complexity of these contracts was because getting higher. So we understood we cannot do it ourselves. So my co-founder said, I know a guy, I studied with him also particle physics, and he's great, but he works in a bank and he's data science lead there, right? And we kind of have very little money. I don't understand what if we can offer to him, but you know, we have very cool project, we have really cool technology, we have interesting use case. So he said, you know, I will probably go and have some beers with him, you know, and just maybe ask if he can maybe help us part-time. Maybe we can have a small hackathon to make a boost our technology. So my co-founder went to have some beers with that guy. And that was one of our first employees because he was also working at his full-time job for some time. And then eventually in a year, he joined us. So it became three of us. We started to look for people in our network, people we studied with. Also, like some physicists joined us, also some people from physical faculty. Then we went on hackathons, you know, to look for smart people and motivated because you have to be smart and motivated to kind of dedicate your weekends for a hackathon. Hackathon, for those who have never visited one, is a programming competition. So it's coming from two words, hack and marathon. So it's hackathon. So we went to these programming competitions to look for people. We were kind of pitching them what we're doing. Everyone got excited. What was AI? It's medical. It's like health. It's wellness. It has social impact. So to some extent, when you are looking for people, when you're trying to hire, you are selling them the idea of your company, especially when you cannot offer them strong incentives like high salary or, I don't know, fancy laptops or a fancy office, right? You have to be patient as a founder, right? At least one of you has to be. And this is how our first of our hiring happened, maybe until we were 10 people. When we were 10 people, we already started to make some money, what we could, you know, pay salaries, and then we could even find recruiters or afford a recruiter who would be looking for more team members to us. But again, we still were a small startup. So until now, we still take a lot of efforts to hire people. It's important to hire people who have same attitude as you are who are passionate about what you're doing, especially when you're a small company. I don't mean like people have to be super excited, 
in a way that, you know, some people just do their job right. Everyone has different motivation. Sometimes it's what you're doing. Sometimes it's the impact. Sometimes it's money. But my personal thoughts is if you're building a startup and money is the only motivation, it's not good. I don't know how it functions in the bigger corporations. I think when you have an already very well-established managerial structure, managers, KPIs, systematic performance reviews, then maybe you can have more people who are just motivated by money. But I think in a startup, it's not the way to go. It doesn't mean that you have to kind of, on the interview, a person will only tell you how great you are, how technology is great, but you need to understand what is in it for them, right? So why do they want to join your company? That has to be authentic. You don't have to hire people just because they told you too many compliments as a founder. For you, especially when you're saying these hackathons, so that anyone who's listening now, let's say you're not even in the technology game, like you're going to build a technology type business. Well, you got to think where your clients are going to be, right? And how you make money from them as far as the client base. But you also have to, if you want to hire, you're like, okay, where would people be that I want to hire that are specialized in this? So maybe different types of meetups, depending on what your specialty is, but you'd want to go to those type of events to try to find people, at least the first couple of people, it seems like to make sure that, yeah, maybe you need a programmer or someone to help you even develop an app. And you're like, okay, let me try one of these hackathons. Maybe that's somewhere where I need to go because I know nothing about it. So that was obviously a clever idea and I think pretty smart. So kudos to figuring that out. Yes, everyone should now look up some hackathon and sign up for that because it's really good just to meet motivational people. Sometimes you get such a great energy boost just talking with someone who's passionate about something. It doesn't even have to be your field. So that's really inspirational. I think it's a really good place to kind of occasionally visit. Makes total sense because even when you're hiring, when you're talking about hiring, I guess in general, some people are like, you can tell it in their voice. They're super excited when they get up to work on something, but maybe they're not as good proficiently as someone who might be a little bit calmer. Sometimes when you hire both those people, they kind of bring out the best in everybody where you have this guy who has good energy, makes everyone more positive versus if you have hired someone who is negative and might be good at their job. No one wants that in their company because it's going to bring down everybody else. So maybe they're personally really good at their job, but the negative energy they're bringing to everybody else is bringing it down. It makes it not worth it. So again, yeah, I think that's a great idea. Trying to find a tech person, look at hackathons in your area, but there's different ways you could brainstorm your next business idea and think about, okay, where would be a perfect co-founder be? Where would I find that person? Am I going to find that person on the basketball court down the street? More than likely not. But what happens if I go to some type of event that's in the industry that I want to be in? Hey, you have a much higher percentage of trying to find someone who will work with you and hopefully be an employee or maybe a co-founder or something of that nature. I totally agree. And I even, you know, want to add to what you said, you know, about how to keep the moral in the team. Some people are negative. Some people just, you know, very excited about things and just their temper is different. But genuinely, I think that skills are important, of course, especially if you are a tech startup, especially if you are building deep tech product, right? You have to understand how it works. You have to hire professionals. But I would say that you still can teach skills if some of them are missing, but it's very hard to teach someone an attitude, right? I think it's impossible. So you kind of have embraced people who are who they are. If you think it's it will work out, yes, you need to have hire this person and like move forward. If you think over time it's not working out anymore, right? I think it's a good idea to just kind of be frank about that, talk with that person, and you know, maybe just should be parting your ways because. If they are negative, probably there's some reason behind that. Maybe they don't believe in the product. Maybe they don't like some things about the company and they're like a way to improve this. But 
attitude is very important. It's as important as skills. I think quite often it's even more important than skills. No, I agree. Because I even what I kind of said earlier, I'm like, if you have a person who has positive energy and they're uplifting all these other people, just think about the percentage better that you're doing all over in your company versus, again, if you had a negative person bringing everyone down, maybe 20%, 30%. So I think that makes a huge difference. And so after you made your first couple of hires, can you walk us through maybe the next big step in your journey of creating this company? Yeah. So right now, as a company, we think that we have identified their segment. We were doing things maybe a little bit better than everyone else. So this is where we kind of want to grow. Yeah. But real quick, before, when you're talking about doing AI, even in the beginning, did you decide that it was going to be the beauty field right away? Did you just look at stats and decide you're going to get in that field? Like, how did you decide that? Initially, we wanted to go into health tech in a medical software, but Medical software usually has very small data sets, and it's kind of crucial part for AI to be able to train well is to have large data sets. In 2016, structured repositories of data or data lakes for clinics didn't exist. There was no idea of how this medical data will be regulated. Everyone was scared. Everyone was kind of frozen and hesitant to act. I think that this medical revolution is only happening like really in the last couple of years when also medical regulation changed, for example, in Europe and became more straightforward. Still, it's kind of not perfect, but it's, you know, there's immense work done there. Also for the FDA, similar approach for how we should be treating AI software. But let's think of like back in 2016, there was no clear legal framework. And we just thought we're like a two-person company with no experience in the medical field. So we wanted to kind of experiment and like kind of move faster. So this is why we started to look at fields that are not necessarily medical, but they're also wellness. So this is when we started to think about skin. This is when we started to think about beauty. And one of the decisions was, you know, let's try something in beauty because it looks like there is less regulation there. And it's also a challenging task and it's a bit of market. So these were some of the rationales behind our choice to go into the beauty space. Glad I asked because, yeah, that way you were thinking you're like, it's going to be much easier to get a lot more data to actually use in our AI versus if you're only making sales on so many medical devices or something like that. It's almost impossible to even know how much data, but you know, the data is like so low amount that AI is not really going to help as much. Yeah. So, quite often, you will be only developing a model that works on a very limited business case. So, AI has an attribute which is called generalization capability. It means how well your model or like algorithm can generalize. So if you have particular data input and then you change it slightly, will the system now think it's a completely different thing or will it think, okay, but something similar to what I did before. So the problem is when you have a very small data set, your generalization capability is off. So you can slightly iterate an image and then for an algorithm, it will be a completely different thing but the algorithm never encountered before and quite often will just produce results that don't make any sense. It's kind of rubbish. So after you made this move into getting into skincare, did you specifically decide skincare? Or I guess if you can tell us a little bit more in detail how this has panned out. The main idea for us was what's an easy way to capture data? So we thought of skin because you can photograph your skin with a selfie phone. So I think it was one of the main rationals for us. It's quite hard to make a photo of any other parts of your body, 
right? If you want to go, I don't know, ear throat, or I don't know, even if you want to track a lapisha and take, you know, their picture of the top of your head, you can try that. It's very hard. We also tried as a part of one of our software offering for hair. So yeah, that happened quite naturally. Everyone wants to have healthy skin with a smartphone. You can make pictures of your skin. Let's try going into skin wellness. So that was 2018, right? Because that's when you said you kind of started that AI? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And then can you take us over those couple of years? Because I know we kind of jumped to, I think, 2022. You said you 3X your company by doing the WordPress plugin. But could you fill us in between 2018 and 2022, the lessons you learned that hopefully can help anyone listening right now? Yes, sure. So 2018, we just started the company. We incorporated, but we already had some R&D. We did before. And it was time to sell. We had to figure out how to sell this to someone. We had multiple conversations with beauty brands, with companies. They honestly were not buying it the first year. No one could understand, okay, that's AI. It's super hype. It's super attractive to be associated with AI. What's the actual use case? Why should we buy your software? How I will be buying your software? Do I buy it and I send you pictures to send me back the report? Or how does it work? What if I want to process 1,000 pictures? How fast can you send me the results? What if I want to do it in a retail kiosk? Do I have to wait an hour for you to send me the results? I had conversations with people in their field who, back in 2014, were applying virtual makeup in the pictures. And you would be coming into a store, making a picture, it would be sent overseas, I don't know, to maybe a completely different location, and there an artist would be applying some virtual makeup on you, like real makeup, just painting that, and sending back to their grocery store where you maybe made this picture, I don't know, like Walmart, and then you will be coming back and seeing your results, right? So there was no clear understanding what would be the use case around that. So we spent a lot of time just, you know, talking with people, trying to understand what we would buy, trying to understand what's their problem. In 2019, 2020, we started to get first idea, you know, but it has to be something that you can use easily. So this is when this idea of API business came to us. We spent quite a lot of time on engineering sites, right? Because you have this amazing AI model. It runs in the cloud. It can generate meaningful, good results, which are comparable in accuracy with an expert grading. But what if someone sends us 1,000 pictures in one minute? For the other reasons, maybe it's like very high demand for this API or Maybe there is like some fraud or attack, like maybe someone's trying to corrupt your system. What are you going to do? So then we realized that if we want to work with corporations, they value reliability, they value well-engineered things that don't break. So again, in 2020, we were really investing in our infrastructure, thinking through the use cases, how we can make it secure, how we can make it fast. So after that, AP business was more or less established. But another question came, like how we can sell more now, right? So there is only 200 big brands, big companies on the market. So how we can sell above this to 200 brands and companies, like the largest ones. So this is when we started to think, what could be the delivery system? The idea of e-commerce widget came to us really spontaneous. I don't even remember how. I think we just had some daily stand-up with everyone, you know, just talking about what we're going to do next for our software. And then the idea came like, but can I buy it without API? How can I do that? And I think that everyone started to reflect on that idea and the idea of a widget came by because you want to embed it into website, make it seamless. We also knew that we are developing software for beauty. 
we need to kind of make a step back and think, what's the difference between beauty and manufacturing? Or, I don't know, maybe machines or manufacturing cars. Or like, what's the difference between beauty and pharma, right? Or like maybe medical dermatology. So beauty is immersive. It's a way of self-expression. And this is some of the points we wanted to make address in our software. So if beauty is about expressiveness, if beauty is to be immersive, software that we will deliver to customers who are businesses also should allow them to express themselves, meaning that they should be able to kind of build branding on our platform or customize the language or customize the looks. They want it to be seamless because experience is important. Sometimes you go to some brick and mortar stores, you know, just to maybe take the bottle, feel how heavy it is feel like what's the texture, maybe smell the scent of a cream. So how we can translate this immersiveness, how we can build trust, right? Because if I want to say, you know, it's a better way to shop, like, like, why do you think so? Why would you be saying that using Hout AI software, it's better alternative than, you know, maybe using a quiz or, you know, maybe better alternative to just randomly choosing products. So this is when we started to think, okay, software should develop a comprehensive report, which is not too advanced, in a way that it's, it's advanced, but it's not kind of overwhelming. So this, again, our idea is kind of around product. should be trustable. It should be easy to understand, like what predictions were made, why products were recommended. It should be nicely visually designed. We should have an option to customize that. So you start to think, you know, what's, what are the kind of special traits of this field? You start to think more about what's important for my clients. You can ask them. Sometimes they tell you straightforward what they want. They quite often don't tell you what they want. You need to observe. You need to listen. And all of these conversations, everything, all of your experience, even like unsuccessful, will form your vision. This is, I think, what we did with our unsuccessful attempts. We saw things that were not successful, but then we also talked with our clients. We grow a network. And this is how we came up with the idea of this constructor, e-commerce widget, what we're selling right now very effectively. And yeah, that's how our, our journey was. Building, gradually making connections, exploring what's happening, exploring the trends and consolidating this knowledge into our product. And so what does your revenue look like today? That information is confidential, so I kind of will not be disclosing exact number, but it's still under 10 million in annual recurrent revenue. But we're hoping in a couple of years, maybe in three years to kind of surpass that threshold. And how many clients? Because I know you said you looked at the top 200. That's when you kind of had the AI, right? I was curious, after you looked at that, I imagine you reached out to all of them. Yes. Unfortunately, not everyone but them. So, Well, you don't necessarily have to do it with everybody, right? But yeah, I was curious, like how many of those big clients you landed first before you decided you had to kind of do a widget in order to reach different demographics of companies? So I think we had around 30 clients, maybe like 25, 30 clients, when we started to think of, you know, how we can sell more. I mean, it's obviously not a very big number, but you need to think back. We were a startup. We are a startup now. Right. And yeah, it's zero in the beginning. So I mean, I don't think it's small or anything. Yeah. And especially if you're selling to big companies, that's much more difficult. Well, it's to some extent more difficult. And I think to some extent it has some benefits because honestly, big companies, they will take a good technology in shape of a product that's undercooked. Because they have their technical capacities to finish a product, polish that, maybe change some, you know, the user interface or maybe, you know, build additional business logic. They do have the resources. They have designers. They have product people to help them shape your technology into the product and consumer-facing experience they want. 
In that sense, yes, they can do that. Small companies will not do that, right? They need to have something finished, ready, but they can just take and use. I'm here with Megan Bennett. How's it going, Megan? It is going great. How's my favorite podcast host and the most handsome young man? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for stating the obvious, Megan. But we're here to talk about you and your company, Light Years Ahead. I interviewed Megan on episode 177 of this very podcast, and she helped all of our Patreon members on Group Call 3. So you can hear more about Megan and how she helped our Patreon members there as well. So would you mind telling us what you do and how you could help our listeners, Megan? Yes. So my agency is Light Years Ahead, and we're boutique, but we're a national PR firm. We're women-owned, and we focus on emerging brands, experts, and services in the consumer lifestyle space. We're based throughout the U.S. We're in New York, Kansas City, L.A., and Dallas. And we really specialize in maximizing media exposure for brands and experts, which can then create more sales and brand awareness and influence buying decisions. Our clients range everything from small startups looking to make a name for themselves to large brands that are trying to become relevant again. My agency, Light Years Ahead, we target the very top editors, writers, and producers across all different media outlets. And we've been doing this for over 20 years, which has earned us a very strong reputation with the top media, with outlets like BuzzFeed, Today Show, Good Morning America, Refinery29, Pop Sugar, Forbes, and many more. We can help you grow your brand into a household name. Well, that sounds awesome. So if someone might be interested in your service, what's the best way for them to reach you? Oh, the best way to reach out is to email me at Megan, M-E-G-A-N, at lightyearsahead.com. That's Megan at lightyearsahead.com. Or you can check out our services and capabilities at lightyearsahead.com, our website. And I know you've helped a few of our past guests as well with their PR, and they do sing your praises. So hopefully you can help some of our listeners as well. Absolutely. And we love working with your listeners and entrepreneurs who are really passionate about what they're doing. And this is what we want to offer your listeners. The first five listeners that schedule a call with us to develop a PR campaign will receive $500 off their first month of services with us. It's a great deal. Awesome. And one more time, what's the best place for them to reach you to take you up on that offer? You can reach me at Megan at lightyearsahead.com or check out our website at lightyearsahead.com or you can go to our Instagram page at L-Y-A-P-R. Want to expand your customer base and boost your revenue? Brevo's comprehensive CRM suite is tailor-made for businesses like yours. Brevo, formerly known as Send in Blue, is the leading customer relationship management suite designed to fully cultivate long-term customer relationships and empower businesses to expand in a fast-changing digital world. With Brevo, businesses have unified view of the customer journey in one easy-to-use platform to grow meaningful relationships. Brevo makes the simple and accessible with intuitive and scalable marketing and CRM tools such as email, SMS, WhatsApp, chat, marketing automation, meetings, and much more. In a world where marketing encompasses the entire customer experience, Brevo puts the focus on lasting relationships with real people. Brevo gives you the tools to attract, engage, and nurture customer relationships. You can build automated customer experiences, email marketing workflows, and landing pages that guide your customer to your main message. They're there to support businesses successfully navigating their digital presence in order to strengthen their customer relationships. It's the perfect business growth tool for marketers, SMBs, and sales teams looking to build with a consolidated marketing and CRM toolbox. Brevo's pricing structure is based on the number of emails sent. 
not the number of contacts stored. Get started with Brevo for free by clicking on their link below or going to brevo.com forward slash entrepreneur and use the promo code entrepreneur to save 50% on your first three months of the starter and business plan. Again, that's brevo.com forward slash entrepreneur and sign up for free. Well, I guess it's understanding knowing who you're going to be your clients first. You knew it had to be bigger companies because you need the data, right? But I'm sure you're probably underselling yourself right now as far as how difficult it is to get your foot in the door in the beginning. And then after you get in, it's probably easier and it makes sense. And like you said, they have these tech teams or whatever. But right when you started, they didn't know who you were. You know, I guess you're in Estonia, right? So it's like, who is this girl in Estonia emailing me about AI, right? Yes. Whenever we were connecting with clients back then, first time, we would say, you know, Estonia, it's the company where Skype came from. And everyone would say, oh, Skype. Is that actually true or no? Yes, it's true. So Skype is an Estonian company, and we still have a lot of Skype first employees who are now also building their maybe like second, third startup. Skype co-founder is also like the founder of Atomica VC firm, which is based in UK. But I know that all of their Skype ex-founders are promoting entrepreneurship and startup ecosystem. This is why Estonian startup ecosystem is so powerful and so friendly. Yes, we have amazing companies here. Do you know CRM software Pipedrive? Yes. It's also an Estonian company. Okay, yeah, I use that. Bolt Systems, which like kind of Uber competitor, is also an Estonian company initially. Transferwise, initially Estonian companies. They have a lot of amazing companies that came from Estonia. Right, and specifically you're in Tallinn, Estonia, right? Which is the capital? Yes, that's correct. Is that where all the startup people are? Because I'm just curious in case anyone who's listening, maybe they're in Estonia, didn't even know that or whatever. But I'm just curious, yeah, after you listed off all these companies, are most of the people just in the capital there? Well, we have also like many people are based in here in the capital city in Tallinn. We also have Tartu, which is very famous for its university. It's amazing natural sciences university and also like has offers degree in software and maths. We also have a big biobank in Tartu, which is very famous in the world, especially for longevity and bioinformatics companies because it has an amazing deposit of data. And Tartu University offers also like different type of partnerships. But yeah, getting back to that thing, but we didn't know who we are. Again, people sell to people. So you try to explain what the technology does. You collect proofs because you also, we had research papers where we explained what we're doing and how. So you have to build this trust. You have to, it was not an easy thing, right? And this is why you build relationships with corporations for a long time, because they kind of evaluate is there any reputational risk for me working with this company? Is it worth my time or like my team time on working with this company? So I would say you have to be specific about what you are offering. You have to be knowledgeable of your product. You have to be knowledgeable of your technology. But yeah, as soon as you land a couple of big clients, you start to have a reputation of they work with some other big companies. Maybe I should kind of be less skeptical about having a call with a super small startup from Estonia. Not even all people know where Estonia is. Right. I guess if anyone's wondering, it's kind of by Sweden and Finland, they can think like that or right by Russia. Yes, yeah, it's a smaller country, but maybe not a lot of people have heard about. But back to even landing that first client, right? Did you just keep emailing them out of these top 200 companies that you're talking about? And maybe it took a year or two for you just giving them updates every once in a while. I'm just curious if anyone's listening now and they, they're trying to sell to a big company, what it took for you and what thoughts you might have for them. Yeah, I would say that email marketing is still a thing. 
social media marketing, when you're reaching out to people on LinkedIn is also important. Telling, like sharing more about what you're doing, whether it is your LinkedIn blog or company blog, just, you know, whenever people who are interested, because if people are interested, if they're looking for something similar to what you're doing, it's more likely that they will notice you. It's more likely that they will be open to have a conversation with you. So that's why email marketing is important. But let's say you send, you know, maybe 10 emails and a person already starts to think that you're like stalking them, right? They finally give you a chance and they think, okay, let's maybe connect for a call. But they for sure will look you up on our internet, right? They type in your name and your company. If your website is kind of doesn't even explain what you're doing or, you know, at least kind of high level, if they don't see any kind of social media where you maybe explain more about your product or technology, how you're doing that, they feel very skeptical, right? So I think like having a good website, it doesn't have to be kind of a masterpiece of arts, right? But at least explaining your product, explaining your technology, what it does, you know, how it works is super helpful. We were sending our clients, we were building up this credibility over time. We realized that we will publish our research work, right? You quite often don't publish your research work, but we thought we want to explain how technology works. People are still not understanding fully AI. That's normal. You know, you can't be kind of expert in everything that's happening. If you would expect that everyone understands AI or whatever specific field you're working, it's like, do you understand, you know, some of the very advanced chemistry, but maybe it was developed in the last two, three years, right? Likely not. So you always have to think if you're in the shoes of another person, maybe a client with whom you try to land, until people can understand you know, at least how it works, high level, what you're trying to do, they will not be convinced, right? So we were continuing also like sending emails or offering to have an update and maybe sending a quick blurb of what we have done and how we have done that. Even if they don't respond to you, you know, maybe you send them another email in a year and think, okay, I maybe remember these guys. It looks like they made some progress. They already made it through the year, which is great for a startup. Some startups die, you know, in less than a year, like in less than two years. So you need to kind of think of how you can build credibility and you build this credibility for explaining how your product works, demonstrating that idea is legit, that technology is legit or like product is helping, you know, maybe collecting some metrics and reaching out to your clients from time to time. Of course, not abusing them, but building your social media, building your website is an important component of marketing. I think for many people who can do marketing in a more creative way, I'd like to meet them, but this is what we were doing back then. Well, that's smart because at first you're probably just sending the emails without like a great website or anything like that. And again, if anyone wants to check yours out, it's H-A-U-T dot A-I. But it's very simple. It's like basically a one pager where you have all the information there. And let's say you didn't have this beforehand and you didn't have on LinkedIn activities where you're writing or doing interviews or something like that. Like you said, you have to put yourself in their shoes as a client. And like kind of we said earlier, finding your first employee or whatever, you got to think of where would those people be? So especially today, people, if they're not sure and eventually they want to get on a call with you, they're going to do some Googling. So just Google yourself or Google your company, see what's coming up. If nothing's coming up, then you're thinking, okay, maybe I need to improve my SEO or at least get your social media kind of thing started. It's not like something you have to update all the time, but I think the more touches where they can see that you're a legit company or feel more confident, they might not even tell you that's what they finally took them to reply to the email. But in their head, that's probably what it did. Before, if you didn't have all those social accounts or proof of, okay, this person knows what they're talking about, you don't always know why they got back to you. But guaranteed, that's one of the reasons. Can't agree more. You need to have your social presence. 
So eventually, like you said, you did the WordPress plugin, which kind of really catapulted things. And then I guess what's gone on over the past year since kind of done that? So we started to think we made some, you know, product changes to make our product easier to use. As we were growing number of clients, we realized that some of the use cases, some of the new use cases were developed by our clients. You know, we were complaining that some things are kind of buggy or, you know, it's not very convenient to use some particular features. It turned out that customers have developed new features, new kind of use cases without us understanding that. So making sure, you know, that we now kind of streamline our user experience, that this product is easy to use and it's evolving, it's, it's something that we're working on at the moment. Then we're also like adding additional capabilities to help our clients extract more value from our software, including automated insight generation or, you know, suggestions for their product inventory. So whatever makes their life easier. In fact, what we're doing right now, we are continuing building up the value on the initial offering of computer vision-based skin analysis. So we're evolving constantly the feature set or, you know, what you can do with our software. That's what is keeping us busy, right? So we want to understand how we can serve better to our clients. We do it through collecting their feedback. We do it through like analyzing the product data and also constantly keeping an eye on what's happening in the industry what consumers want, conducting interviews with real people, especially consumers who are not tech savvy. It's so seductive to build a bias unconsciously in your product, especially if you're kind of have a lot of technical team members. I will give you an example. We recently conducted a research with users. So we recruited some users through like special websites where you can test your products. And again, if you think that you need to test something, there is so much software, you can do it. You don't have to have a big budget to start testing if your product makes sense. For example, in this particular case, I was using Usability Hub and it maybe cost me 100 US dollars to run this test. But getting back to the experiment, we recruited some respondents and we asked them what they want to have in the software, right? So they told that they want to have skin analysis, they want to have recommendations, and that they also want to have, you know, an educational component. So these three things. So then we also invited our friends to participate and give their feedback. And the results were different. So they said that we want face scan, that we want to have recommendations, and then that we also want to track skin dynamics, right? So when we started to analyze this data and understand, you know, why we have different results from our network and like from our initial users who were like randomly recruited. So the thing is that tracking over time is technically very advanced. So our assumption is that because we recruited from, you know, our kind of network and a lot of developers or like AI people, computer vision engineers, we just think that they started to prioritize this feature because it's technically very advanced technique. You know, it takes a lot to do that. Making sure as your team is growing, as a product is evolving, making sure, you know, that use cases and usage is relevant to the consumer, not only kind of to the development team. I think that's very important. And this is kind of what we're now reiterating in our product. And this is how we want to grow our customer base through serving better to their needs rather than only doing something which is very technically advanced just for the sake of that. As you're in it right now, you know, I think that we all learn in business, we try to reiterate or try to make things better as we learn and get more information. And obviously you're kind of doing that with your company and it seems like what, that's what your company is all about. So just want to say thank you for coming on the show and spending the time of helping me understand AI a little bit and telling us a little bit about your company and how everything's going. I guess kind of in closing, I don't know if you have any 
last words of wisdom for all the entrepreneurs out there or if you can help anybody else, what's uh, kind of the best way for them to reach you? So first of all, I want to say, Austin, thank you so much for inviting me. I was really excited to share our journey. And I really hope that someone will listen to that and think, okay, maybe have this crazy idea. I never thought it can come to life, but you should try that. The worst thing that will happen, it will not fly. And maybe you can try some other things. The good thing you can find, a thing that you will be passionate and will motivate you and like improve a lot of your areas of your life. So believing in yourself, writing the right people is very important. And I think it can lead to great success if you find this passion and find the right people to join your team. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, just connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm really happy to help whatever I can do. So anyone who's like listening now, as far as maybe they could be a client for yours, are they only kind of skin companies? Who should reach out if you can actually see if they can implement your AI here? Who are the best people to reach out to you on your website? I would say that we're a beauty intelligence company. So we're not only limited to skin. We have software for hair analysis, for body analysis. We now entered oral care and animal erosion. So if you are in the beauty field, in aesthetics, in longevity, in skin science, we will highly appreciate if you reach out, we'd like to connect with you, we'd like to talk with you what's happening in the field and how we can help you. Should they just reach out on hot.ai? Yes, we have a contact form and it's the best way to reach out to us. All right. Well, thank you again for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you so much, Austin, for having me. But it's bad when you do it to your wife, though, because then you have to crash on the couch. <laughs> See, I have to sleep on the couch every night, too, man. See, we're the same. Was that helpful at all, Gary? Say no. <laughs> Worst experience of my life. One star review. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm used to those. Wish I could leave no stars. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Oh, no, thanks, guys. It was a really great experience. I feel like there's a lot to reflect on. So, yeah, thank you. And I can connect you with somebody too. Okay. I have connections on that so I can help you get it custom made, dirt cheap. I'll share that with you. Look at that Patreon membership already paying off. Aww, look at that. Thanks for coming, member. No, oh, well, I got to thank uh, my business partner. She signed me up because I've been talking about you. Well, awesome business partner. I'm going to have to use that as a plug to tell people to do the same thing. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. But anyway, yeah, thanks for uh, setting this up. I- Get kind of the VIP treatment, I feel like. <laughs> well, I thought it was a lot more intimate than I thought it was going to be. Like anyone who's thinking about doing it, you'll be able to, to get involved, ask a question, you know, which I don't have a lot of experience with other group calls, but I would assume that there's kind of a hierarchy to it. But this one, if you're in there, you're going to get your shot to ask an expert a question. So I tried to compare my group calls. I started joining random entrepreneur groups and just joining their group calls and try to see what they're like. Dude, the one you were on and all of them have kind of gone that way. They're all 10x better than any other group I've been in because become a member to find out. So with Patreon, I heard it many times because you have that many episodes of sign up. So that's always in the back of mind. But then I checked it out a few times and I was like, do I really want to do this? So I'll push it off a little bit. And then you posted your goal achievement of 69 Patreon members. And I was like, you know what, what better time than now? Originally, I was going to go for the lower one, the $9 a month. But one, I want to have the conversation with you. But two, I always find that anytime I cheap out, I always find that I want to return it and upgrade to what I really, really wanted. So that's why I'm paying the higher one, if that makes sense. But it just constantly 
pushing it off, pushing it off, and then I would just like fuck it. I already listened to all of them, so why not? 